0: We will worship our God now in the reading and the preaching of his word. For our text today, we turn in the Old Testament to the book of Lamentations. You find Isaiah, next comes Jeremiah, two long prophetic books. You sometimes land there when you flip to the Old Testament. Keep going one more book and you'll find Lamentations Chapter 3 is where we're going to train our attention today. I've noted in the bulletin that we're going to focus on verses 22 through 24. I've given you the text there in the bulletin, beginning back at verse 19. That's where I'll start reading. And we'll go a little bit beyond verse 24 as well, down to verse 27. So listen now to the Word of God. This is Lamentations chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly. For the salvation of the Lord, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, grateful for the book of Lamentations, perhaps a book we don't turn to often, and yet you have placed it here among the scriptures for our encouragement and instruction. And so we pray that you might encourage and instruct us even now. We fix our eyes on Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last Sunday... I spent several days this past week up in Philadelphia. I was helping out with a benefit concert, which was organized by the Huguenot Fellowship, which is an organization that our church has been contributing to for many years. The Huguenot Fellowship is an organization that's based here in the U.S. that supports a theological seminary Way over in the south of France, and that seminary is called Faculté Jean Calvin, the John Calvin Seminary. And next year, 2024, that seminary in the south of France is going to be celebrating its own 50th anniversary. It's kind of sweet because down in the south of France, they'll be celebrating their 50th anniversary as the Olympics are in Paris, a bit to the north. It was way back in 1974 when that seminary got going as a solid, faithful, Calvinistic seminary in Aix-en-Provence. Fifty years. And then closer to home, our own denomination here in North America, the Presbyterian Church Church, In America, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. It's already upon us. It was way back in 1973 that the PCA got going. 50 years. And that's a big milestone for Faculté Jean Calvin in France and for the PCA in North America. 50 years. And whenever you reach a milestone like that, for God's people... It's an opportunity to look back and testify that God has been faithful. God's been true to His Word. God's kept His promises. And that doesn't mean that the past 50 years have been easy. It also doesn't guarantee that the next 50 years are going to be successful. But it does mean that God's been true to His Word. God's kept his promises, including the promise to be with us when it's not easy and when we're not succeeding. The promise to be with us when things are dark and we've been laid low, perhaps very low. And whenever we reach a milestone like that, well, then it makes sense that God's people regularly sing The well-known hymn, and we'll sing it later in our service, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's a good hymn to sing. And where does that hymn come from? Great is Thy Faithfulness. It comes from the book of Lamentations. It comes from our passage today. Chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Not quite smack in the middle of the book, but almost. It always amazes me that these three verses, 22 through 24, these three sweet, encouraging verses, they're to be found in the middle of one of the darkest books in the whole of the Bible, the book of Lamentation. But that's just it. The fact that they're situated there, of all places, doesn't make these verses somehow less encouraging. If anything, it makes them all the more remarkable to think that you find them there. If anything, it makes these verses stand out and shine all the more brightly, precisely because of where you find them. So that's what we're going to stop and think about together as a church family here this morning. Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 24. Now, before we focus our attention on these verses, what about... This book as a whole, as I said earlier, it's a book we don't turn to all that often. What about the book of Lamentations? Well, you know what Lamentations means. If you look up the word Lamentation in the dictionary, it'll say something like this. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Tremper Longman, in his commentary on lamentations, gives us a more vivid definition than that. He says it's this quote, A lament is a cry uttered when life falls apart. A cry uttered when life falls apart. End quote. And you don't need to read commentaries. To know that that's what we've got in Lamentations, you just need to read the book of Lamentations, and that will become very clear very quickly. You just need to read it or even sing it. Just like last week when we turned to number six, it's true again this week as we're turning to Lamentations three. This is another one of these Bible passages that I can hear in my head because I sang it. And I'm guessing some of you did, too. I sang it in college, and of course, we sang it in Latin. We sang, Incipit Lamentatio Ieremiae Prophete. Translation, here begins the lamentation of Jeremiah the prophet. Reflecting the view that it was Jeremiah the prophet who wrote lamentations. He may have, he may not have, we cannot be sure, that's okay that we can't be sure. We also sang, in Latin, the very first verse in the book. Here it is in English. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. We sang that in Latin. It always strikes me as ironic that the we I'm referring to was the glee 12, and we sang that. We sang another piece from Chapter 1 in Lamentations in Latin: "O vos omnes qui transitis per viam," which is verse 12 in Chapter 1. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger passionate expression of grief or sorrow, a cry uttered when life falls apart. We don't know with certainty who wrote Lamentations. The book itself doesn't tell us. It is an ancient tradition that says that Jeremiah wrote it and that he wrote it about the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians around 600 B.C., We can certainly say that the text fits that episode. In other words, it does make sense as referring to that low moment in Israel's history. And remember, that wasn't just at the hands of the Babylonians that that happened. Ultimately, that was at the hand of God himself. God made that happen. God brought that to pass. God brought the armies of Babylon to do that, and he did it just as he had said he would do it, because his people had turned their backs on him. And so he sovereignly turned the sword of Babylon toward them. There are five chapters in the book of Lamentations, and each of them is its own separate poem. And the first four chapters are acrostic poems. So that stanza after stanza, the opening letters are the consecutive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's extraordinary. And chapter 3, if we can put it this way, is even more impressive than that. In chapter 3, you don't just have each stanza beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In chapter 3, every verse in the stanza begins with that same letter. And so it has the effect of making the Book of Lamentations this remarkable combination of raw emotion on the one hand, a cry uttered when life falls apart, and careful poetic crafting on the other hand. So that it has been called a literary masterpiece. And yes, we can say that about a book in the Bible— The main thing about it is that it is God's word, but let's acknowledge this book that God has put in his word is a literary masterpiece. The poems have been called dirges, even funeral orations, because they feel like that. And no wonder Jerusalem's been laid waste The people of God have been conquered. They've been exiled. Jerusalem was supposed to be the city that was the apple of God's eye. His people were supposed to be his treasured possession, flourishing in the land that he had given them. But now it's just destruction and desolation. And the book of Lamentations describes all of that in rather grim terms. And I mean relentlessly. Over five chapters what actually happened to Jerusalem, what it felt like to see it, to witness it, to be in the midst of it, and then to remember it after the fact. And who was to blame for it? And what the people ought to do now that it's happened? Just relentless over five chapters. Again, listen to Tremper Longman. He puts it this way. Quote, The language is vivid and intense. The reader can almost smell the smoke from the smoldering building, see the bodies lining the street, and most poignantly hear the cries of the children. He concludes, The poet is so effective... That it is almost too much for the reader to bear. End quote. Almost too much for the reader to bear. You read through Lamentations, and there's a part of you that wishes it weren't such a literary masterpiece. There's a part of you that's thinking, this is so, so good, so powerful so vivid that I'm not sure I can keep reading right now. Lamentations. So make no mistake, Lamentations is in many ways a dark book, but there is light in it, believe it or not. There's light in Lamentations, especially in this passage here in chapter 3, and so, I suppose it's no surprise that this may be the one passage in Lamentations here in chapter 3, that people might know. This is certainly a passage in Lamentations that people are drawn to. Why? Because there is hope here. There is light here. And and just knowing that this passage is in the book, before you even get to it in chapter 3, it transforms the way you relate to the whole book. I suppose we might say it's one of the things that keeps you reading when it's hard to bear. Because, yes, the darkness is relentless, but it's not unmitigated. And if you know the book, and if you know this passage in chapter 3, it helps you not just to bear the book, not just to endure it, but to lean into it and to learn from it. So what I want to do this morning is pour not point out four beams of that light that shines here, that light that emanates from these verses in chapter 3. In the midst of devastation, four beams of light. And notice again how he gets into it. Again, it's printed in your bulletin if you just want to gander. Verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So it's true, he is he's surveying this devastation that is sweeping, that's come upon the people as a whole, that's come upon the great city of the people of God, but he takes it so personally. He says, this is, this is my affliction, these are my wanderings. But then verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And there's that colon, and boy, are you hanging now for what comes next. After all of this darkness, he says, but this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. And you want to know, what is it? Please tell me, what is it that you call to mind so that you have hope in the midst of devastation? Here's the first beam of light. Steadfast love. In the midst of devastation, steadfast love. It says it right there in verse 22. Take a look at verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The word that's translated here is steadfast love. It carries with it the idea of loyalty. The loyalty of a God who has bound himself to his people by covenant. And he's going to stick to it. Loyalty. The steadfast love, the loyal love of God never ceases. His loving commitment to his people never ceases. And stop and think about the marvel it is that he says that, that he says that here in Lamentations, given everything we've just considered about what this book's about. This is in Lamentations, this isn't in Revelation. This isn't one of the songs of heaven. When he says this, Jerusalem has been laid waste, the people of God have been conquered and exiled. If you take all of that in, if you survey that scene, if you survey that scene with the naked eye, apart from the word of God, apart from faith in God, well, there are a lot of words that might come to mind as you survey that scene Steadfast divine love, that phrase isn't among them. Loyal divine love, probably not a phrase that's going to come to mind. I mean, if you survey that scene of utter devastation with the naked eye, certainly the phrase that's going to come to mind, the sentence that's going to come to mind, is not the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Apart from the Word of God, apart from faith in God, the best you might be able to come up with would be something like, well, God might have loved you before. But take a look. That has ceased. That's no longer true. Mere flesh takes it all in. This desolate, destroyed city and sees writ large over the whole scene two words utter abandonment certainly not steadfast love even if he loved you before not anymore apparently that has ceased apparently but the writer of lamentations says otherwise And he can say otherwise precisely because he's not surveying the scene with the naked eye. He is taking it in through the lens of the Word of God. He is taking it in as one who has faith in God. And what has the Word of God taught him? What is it that he trusts to be true by faith? Well, the Word has taught him that the loyal love of God has run through this whole dark episode from start to finish. God had not abandoned his people. His love is loyal love. So yes, all around this passage in Lamentations, the writer is saying that the Lord has burned with anger against his own people, and he has shown it. But here in this passage, in chapter 3, the writer is saying, don't come to the wrong conclusion. He's saying, don't think for a moment That this desolation that we can see means that God has abandoned his people, that he's broken his covenant straight through. No, his steadfast, loyal love never ceases. And he can say that even as the buildings are smoldering and the children are crying. Not only can he say that, but isn't it, in a moment like that, that you've got to run to that truth and say it. His loyal love never ceases. So that's the first beam of light here. Steadfast love. Here's the second. New mercies. That's the second. New mercies. Look at what he says. He says, His mercies never come to an end They are new every morning. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. What's mercy? What does it mean to show mercy? It means showing kindness to someone who deserves the opposite. Especially those who are in dire straits and who deserve the opposite of being rescued from those dire straits. And the writer is saying that the Lord is continually merciful. His mercies are new every morning. What does that mean? It means that his people are every day on the receiving end of new acts of kindness from him. Every day. The way he forgives them. The way he renews them. The way way he brings them back to their hope. And it means that his people grow in such a way as to have an ever new, ever deepening appreciation of the mercies that he's shown them in the past. So it's a combination of new blessings received and old blessings newly grasped. His mercies are new every morning. And I love this second point right on the heels of our first one. Right? Our first point was steadfast, loyal love, never ceasing. Well, the implication is that steadfast doesn't mean static and stuck in the relationship, steady doesn't mean stagnating. In the relationship, it doesn't mean wearisome, dull, frozen, same old things day after day. The writer has just said yes, God is loyal, God is steadfast, God is unchanging in that way. But steadfast to do what? Steadfast to be what? Answer to be ever new. Not to be a changing God and thank God that He's not a changing God. Not to be a different God over the course of time, but to be a God whom to know is never dull. Knowing God never gets old. Knowing God never gets boring. In effect, God has promised to be that kind of steadfast God to his people. From of old, God has said, To you I will ever be new. And the writer of Lamentations is saying here, yes, I know him to be just such a God as that. New mercy. So that's the second. Here's the third, a third beam of light. And this brings us to our sermon title, our hymn title, Great Faithfulness. Great faithfulness. And here we can underline the word great. Human beings can certainly demonstrate faithfulness in our relationships. God calls us to do it. By his grace, God enables us to exhibit it. But all you've got to do is stop and think about your own relationship. About your own heart. To see that our faithfulness is not so great. Great. Our faithfulness, even at its best, as sinners, has its limit. Eventually, one way or another, we show ourselves to be little promise breakers. But God never does. And he never will. And the writer of Lamentations had learned that. He'd learned that God isn't just faithful. He's faithful with a great faithfulness in eternally unswerving faithfulness to his people that never fails not even for a second even when he chastises us even when he lays us low that's not an interruption in his faithfulness that's actually an expression of it a continuation of it he's faithful and greatly so so that's the third and then here's the fourth and last of the four, one more beam of light in the midst of devastation. We'll call it reasonable hope. Reasonable hope. The first three were steadfast love, new mercies, great faithfulness. Well, this is what you might call the practical payoff of those three hope. Reasonable hope. Remember back in verse 21? The, the, the statement that set the stage for all of this, what does he say in verse 21? This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. And then down in verse 24, he says it again. Look at verse 24. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And doesn't that make all the difference? Again, as you're surveying some scene of devastation, and not just surveying it as some distant observer, but feeling it personally, deeply, painfully, it is hope that makes all the difference. I mean, think about the devastation that you see sometimes on the news. A hurricane that blows through. A snowstorm that ends up wreaking havoc and even causing flooding, a forest fire. It ends up burning down a whole lot more than forest. Later we'll sing to him, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and we'll mention summer and winter and springtime and harvest. It seems like every one of those seasons of the year brings with it its own peculiar form of devastation. Well, in the midst of devastation like that, There is nothing quite so devastating as hopelessness in the midst of it. That can feel like the cruelest blow of all, feeling hopeless in the midst of it. And sometimes on the news, right after some awful form of devastation, sometimes in the midst of it while it's going on, and they rush to the scene with their cameras and their microphones, and they turn on their cameras and they, they put microphones right up to people who are weeping and who are trying to process it. Sometimes you hear that, that, that cry, like, I've lost everything and I, I've got no hope now. That's the cruelest blow of all because at that point it's not just that you've suffered, it's worse than that. At that point it's that you suffered and it feels like there's no point to it. And nothing's ever going to come of it. Just pure pain. Pain without purpose and without a future beyond it. That's the cruelest blow of all. But the writer of Lamentations isn't there. I will hope in him. And he can say that because of steadfast love and new mercies and great faithfulness. What he says there at the beginning of verse 24 is, is, is the key. It's the clincher. He says, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. This God of love and mercy and faithfulness, he's mine. And he'll always be mine, my God, and I'll always be his. His child, armies can come, cities can burn, whole peoples can be uprooted, but he'll always be mine. And that's why I say what the writer is expressing here is a reasonable hope. He says, I will hope in him, and it actually makes sense for him to say that. He's standing on solid ground when he says that it's a reasonable conclusion for him to come to, to be able to say, I will hope in him. He's got reasons to be hopeful, and they are just what we've canvassed. Steadfast love, new mercy, great faithfulness. So it was in the days when this book was written when those buildings were smoldering and in the aftermath of it. So it was then. Brothers and sisters, is it still true today? These beams of light that we've just surveyed, are they still shining? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. In fact, if anything, these beams of light are brighter For us to see, because now we see them in the light of Jesus Christ. All four of them. In Jesus Christ, steadfast love, right? The loyal love of God has been revealed in the giving, in the coming, in the saving work of the Son of God. Which is why Paul can say at the culmination of Romans 8, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's loyal love. So too, our second one, new mercies in Jesus Christ. The mercies of God are new every morning. Day after day in Jesus Christ, fresh supplies of forgiveness and strength. And not only that, but day after day in Christ, an ever new, ever deepening appreciation of just what he did for me when he died for me. And when he lived his whole life leading up to that. So that his death for me, that ancient mercy, is ever new. So, to our third, in Jesus Christ, great faithfulness. Our faithfulness isn't so great, but God's is, and there is no clearer proof of it than the fact that God followed through and sent his Son to be our Savior. So that Jesus says now, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Steadfast love, new mercies, great faithfulness, all of these shine beautifully, brightly, brilliantly in Christ. And therefore, the fourth one too. In Jesus Christ, ours is a reasonable hope. In Jesus Christ, thanks to Christ, it makes all the sense in the world. That we are a people who look forward to the world to come with rock-solid confidence. Which is why Peter can say, 1 Peter 3, people of God, get ready. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's just it. Ours in Christ is a reasonable hope. If the Christians ever asked that kind of question, what makes you hopeful? The answer is not, well, I just happen to find myself a generally optimistic fellow. That's a fine thing to be, and the world would be better if there were more people like it. But finally, that's not hope. That's a personality trait. There's got to be more to Christian hope than that. In the midst of devastation, just being a generally optimistic fellow is only going to get you so far. And it might not get you very far at all. There's got to be more, and there is. And the reasons are the same. Loyal love, new mercies, great faithfulness, all of it on unprecedented display now in Jesus Christ. All of it pointing forward to our eternal destiny, our heavenly destiny. When God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. No more devastation then. So this helps us to see, looking back now at Lamentations, where all this came from, just how important this relatively brief passage is in the whole book of Lamentations. Because it helps us to see how important hopefulness is in the very act of lamenting. Can you imagine a bestseller On the shelves of your local Christian bookstore entitled, Seven Steps to Better Lamenting. Probably not. In part because I'm not even sure we have Christian bookstores anymore. But the reality is, even the act of lamenting is something that can be done either faithfully or faithlessly. And one aspect of lamenting faithfully is doing so hopefully. Put it this way if you allow yourself to lapse into crying out to God about your sorrows as a Christian without any sense of hope at the same time, at that point you no longer have the book of Lamentations to stand on. You cannot claim this book if you just allow yourself to lapse into utter, unmitigated despair. At that point, you've begun to do something other than what the writer of Lamentations does. If you were to set that kind of lamenting before him, whoever he was who wrote it, he'd say, I don't know what this is. I don't know what you're up to. He'd say, I know how I cried. I know how I felt. Sorrow mixed with hope. I remember that in me, and what you're about isn't it. It's hopefulness that makes all the difference. Now, that does not mean that you have to give explicit, extended expression to your hopefulness for the future every single time you pray. And the proof of that in the Bible, well, one proof, is Psalm 88. Read Psalm 88 from start to finish. It's lament from start to finish. There isn't a single expression, explicit expression of hopefulness in the whole psalm. But even Psalm 88, you can tell that the hopefulness is there in his heart. Why? Because even Psalm 88 begins with this cry, O Lord, God of my salvation. And then the psalmist goes on from there to pour it out. Psalm 88. So in a given prayer that you pray, it may not be in your words, at least not at great length. The question is, is it in your heart? Hopefulness for the future. Hopefulness for heaven. And if it is, It will come out in your words. Hopeful, lamenting. Consider the example of Jesus. Jesus led the way. Even Jesus lamented. The book of Hebrews, I know I've pointed you to this passage before in Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, it says this. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So there he is, lamenting. But he was not hopeless in it. Because what does the writer of Hebrews go on to say right after that? says with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5. So yes, Jesus lamented and he lamented with hope. In his case, it wasn't the hope of the redeemed sinner. In his case, it was the hope of the trusting Redeemer. In his case, it was the certain expectation about where his life was going as the Redeemer. He knew that he'd been designated by God to save the people of God. Well, then, he knew that the sorrows of this life, including his own they simply couldn't be the end of the story for him. And so he was able to offer up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, knowing that he had hope, the hope of resurrection and renown to the glory of God. Jesus was a faithful, hopeful, we can even say joyful, lamenter. And now it's the same Jesus who says to you, Christian, take my hand. In the midst of your own devastation, whether it's sweeping in the church, in the world around you, or whether it's deeply personal and private, or some combination of the two, whatever it is, Jesus says, take my hand and talk to me tell me what's in your heart so Christian I wonder what shapes and sizes of devastation you're dealing with here this morning and we've all brought them through those doors into this room make no mistake it could be anything from water in your basement to intractable sin in your heart. It could be the pain of a broken bone or the pain of a broken relationship. It could be the devastation that you see and hear about in the news. Whatever it is, this light still shines. All four beams and they shine brightly in Christ and Christian, this light shines for you. It shines to show you the way to the throne of grace. You can go to that throne now. You can run there and lament. And the best news of all is that you can do that with hope. It is perfectly reasonable that you lament with hope because the one who sits on that throne is just as loving and merciful and faithful as he's ever been. As a church here in Fairfax, we can look back and see it over our 30 plus years. Great is his faithfulness. And our denomination here in North America and faculty Jean Calvin can look back and see it over 50 years. And we don't just look back, we look forward. Whatever the future holds, the faithfulness of God will always hold true and it will always. Always be great. Let's pray together. Father, we worship you. You are faithful and greatly so. And you are loving and loyally so. And you are merciful and continually so. So that we are hopeful and reasonably so. Take these things and impress them upon our souls yet again, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.